You're listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast about world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Hi, I'm Kevin Dunn, Professor of Political Science and Director of the International Relations Program at HWS. And I'm Stacey Philbrick Yadav, Chair of Political Science. Today's episode focuses on a discussion of the decolonization of the Japanese Empire post-World War II, including the North Korean Repatriation Project, something that I knew nothing about before going into this episode, and how that the whole process of decolonization continues to affect Japanese-Korean relations and East Asian affairs. But at its root, this episode is really about memory and history. And we're joined with the architect of this episode, Carly Shiver. Hi, Carly. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm Carly. I am a William Smith senior, double majoring in international relations and Asian studies. Uh, My concentration is on Japan. I have been taking Japanese for a number of years, and I've been working really closely with Professor Yoshikawa this semester in an independent study, as well as her Asia-Pacific Wars class. So that kind of informs my background for my interest in the North Korean Repatriation Project and Japanese decolonization. So Carly, as we were preparing for this episode, you shared with us a portion of a diary entry that you translated as a part of the research that you've been doing with Professor Yoshikawa. And since we're going to be talking about memory and the politics of memory in the context of conflict and decolonization, I thought maybe we could just start with this. Would you read it for us? Yes. The returnees from Japan wore clothes that were the latest in Japanese public trends at the time, but if you looked at the clothes worn by North Koreans, you could tell the difference. It was winter, and even though it was a harsh winter, they wore shoes already torn, workers' pants, and more clothes stuffed with cotton on top. But the returnees who came from Japan wore really nice clothes in comparison. It wasn't that the repatriates coming from Japan had always lived especially luxurious lives, but that people in Japan didn't wear tattered clothing. People who were born in North Korea and grew up there could be distinguished by their clothes. And when I arrived at the town of Kyotsu, even though it was a port town, the sight of it could not compare to Japan. So you noted that this was from someone named Yonsun Park and that this memory was written down in 2018. And I'm wondering if you can tell us anything more about this person or how memories like this offer a window into the history and politics of decolonization that you've been studying. Yes, so uh, Yonsun Park, whose memory this is, was born in 1938 in Hiroshima. Uh, she grew up in Japan, even though she was ethnically uh, Zainichi Korean. And when she was 24 years old in 1962, she traveled to North Korea after her seven siblings and parents already had as part of the repatriation project. And this passage was during a public symposium uh, organized by Kikoksha, a grassroots organization for recording the memories of repatriates based in Japan. This is a really interesting story, which, again, I said I knew nothing about going into this episode. 
And for this episode, Carly, you actually interviewed Professor Lori Watt of Washington University in St. Louis. Why were you interested in talking to Professor Watt in particular? So my international relations and Asian studies advisor um, and overall life coach, Professor Lisa Yoshikawa, was once a TA for Lori Watt um, when they were at Yale. And Lori Watt is now an associate professor of history and international and area studies at WashU. She has a PhD in modern Japanese history from Columbia, and she is really published extensively on Japanese decolonization and the remnants of Japanese imperialism that still govern East Asian relations today. And I thought she would be the best person to share insight on how history actively informs international relations. Yeah, it seems like you've got the perfect person to talk to. So let's go listen to that conversation now. Professor Watt, thank you so much again for coming today. And I guess I wanted to start off our conversation broadly with the uh, topic of memory work. Could you explain a little bit about what memory work is and how engaging with the past actively affects how history is viewed in the present today? So as you probably know, memory studies theory is vast and there are many different approaches to how to understand memory, collective memory, national narratives, ranging from trauma and personal memory on the one hand to collective memory on the other. And there is one essay that I found to be especially helpful. I just sent it to you, I emailed it to you just before our interview. And it's called um, Operations of Memory, Comfort Women and the World by the historian Carol Gluck. And I like this essay because she's able to say, here is how memory works in late 20th century industrial societies. And she gives us a little kit and she says, look, there are four terrains of memory. There is official memory, which um, in your questions you were asking about state memory or official memory, so that's official memory. Vernacular memory, which is how ordinary people or people that she calls memory activists get together and do memory. There's personal memory of things that we've all experienced. And then there's something that she calls meta memory. And you and I are doing meta memory right now in talking about memory and, and talking about how memory shapes history. So this is one example of um, a very useful essay on memory studies where she's able to define the terrains of memory. And then she says, um, memory activists can bring different topics into our attention using vectors from below and vectors from outside. So below being activists and vectors from outside, for example, international pressure. And then in this essay, she gives us a case study and that's the coming into memory of the issue of the comfort women. Um, as I'm sure you know, the comfort women, this is a euphemism for about 200,000 women, mainly from the Korean Peninsula, who were brought into this military sexual slavery system during World War II. Nobody paid any attention to them until 1991 when Kim Hak-soon comes forward, identifies herself publicly as a comfort woman, and it bursts into public consciousness. And it's quite interesting if you take this topic and put it into a Google engram, um, all of a sudden in the 1990s, you know, there's no mention of the so-called comfort women and then they burst into memory. And 
So if you've got a rubric like the one that Carol Gluck suggests, um, it's really helpful to think about how things come into memory, how they remain, um, and then, then how so sometimes how they fade from memory. So this is just one example of an analysis of memory studies and Asian history. Um, as you, I'm sure you know, the history and memory wars in Asia really picked up around 1989. Uh, this was the end of the Cold War. It was also the death of Hirohito. Um, and from, from that point on, things really um, heat up. We have Kim Hak-soon coming forward in 1991. We have Iris Chang and the publication of the Rape of Nanking in 1995. Um, and then, you know, periodic visits to Yasukuni Shrine on the part of Japanese politicians. So really, just as we can periodize history, we can also periodize memory. And we can say that these history and memory wars really pick up from 1989. They sort of surge through the 90s. Um, there was a respite for a few years, but now they're they're back on again. What factors contribute to such large discrepancies between these these state sanctioned at the official level narratives of of memory? You know, my view on this, um, th thinking about um, interesting works of history and memory in Asian history, um, one of the best books that I've I've come across um, in, on this issue. It's a book by Francesca Serafim um, called, let's see, I put it on my bibliography here, um, War Memory and Social Politics in Japan from 1945 to 2005. And in this book, Serafim goes through and looks at five different civic or organizations and she chose well. Um, she started with some on the far right, including the Shinto Shrine Association, the Bereavement of War Victims Association, and goes all the way over to the left to the Japan Teachers Union and a Sino-Japanese Friendship Organization. And she looks at these five organizations and traces their activities over time. And it turns out, contrary to what many um, Americans and other people like to believe, people in Japan have been doing memory work really since the war ended. But one of the problems with the way that people have done memory work in Japan is first of all, it's not the kind of work that other people want them to do, right? Other people want them to apologize and compensate. Secondly, most of it happens in a Japanese language idiom, so it's hard for people to access. But the third, her biggest finding is that she argues that in Japan, memory work takes place at the civic level. So these are all pressure groups, memory activist groups, um, and they're organizations that get together and advocate for different policies, but they're civic level organizations. And what people outside of Japan want is for the state to take the lead. They want the Japanese national government, whether that's the prime minister, his cabinet, the diet, you know, the parliament, they want the government to come and say, Yes, we recognize that um, it was the Japanese government that, that conducted the war. We recognize that um, we are at fault and we will compensate you. That's what they want and that's not forthcoming. And um, it's interesting to compare this to uh, West Germany after the war where the West German state uh, um, took you know, they were the ones who said, here's what happened in the war. 
We're going to educate our population about it. We're going to pay compensation to citizens who were harmed by the war. And we're going to fully recognize the actions of the German state during the war. And so it's not that the Japanese have forgotten their history. Um, it's something that for some reason, Americans love to say this. That's not the case. The problem is that it happens at, a, at the level, the civic level and not the, not the state level. Right, and international eyes are looking to the state for some kind of official action. And I mean, with the controversy, even in, in just talking about it in general, it's not really a surprise that the government has avoided questions surrounding issues of memory and historical events for so long. And you asked um, in your questions, or, or one topic that I'm sure that we'll get to is, is what is the American role in this? And as you may know um, from John Dower's book called Embracing Defeat, you know, the Americans, they really, I think it's, it's somewhat accidentally, they, they accidentally provide the means for people in Japan to um, embrace this narrative of the Japanese as victims of World War II. And it happens early when the Americans go with the Potsdam Declaration and with different kinds of education to say, look, it, it was self-willed militaristic leaders who led you astray. If you reject them, you know, the Japanese people can then embrace human rights, get a new constitution. And so it was really this small group of terrible military leaders. Right, rather than condemning the entire Japanese state. Right, right. And I mean, that was necessary to move beyond the war and have a peaceful occupation. There were all sorts of good reasons to kind of offer these narratives. Um, nevertheless, um, it, it was a convenient one for people to cling to. Um, and obviously, I mean, if you've followed the work of David Fedman or other scholars, the incendiary bombings of Japan, 67 Japanese cities, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, there are many ways that the Japanese were in fact victims of World War II. It's just that um, if you move away from that history into the, these narratives of the Japanese as, as victims of World War II, it's quite problematic. It was fine as long as it was a domestic conversation. But again, as all of these things burst into the international realm from about 1989, that's when much of the conflict started. So going off your point that, you know, while Japan was certainly a victim in some ways uh, from World War II, obviously they weren't just a victim, they were also a colonial power at that point. Um, and I think a lot of people aren't used to that kind of framing of Japan um, if they've been educated in a Western perspective. Um, so the term decolonization of the Japanese empire, what does that mean? What, I mean, maybe people don't even know that Jap Japan was a colonial empire in the first place. So I guess, what can you give a brief overview of the, of the co colonization efforts of Japan going in, and then the decolonization that happened after World War II? I guess, uh one way to think about it is, you know, Japan had an empire, as I'm sure you know, and there are different ways to periodize that empire. Um, the beginning date is somewhat controversial. Some people say 1879 with Okinawa, others say 1895 with Taiwan, um, but Japan builds a colonial empire. And, you know, in addition to Okinawa, Hokkaido, Taiwan, 
um, Korea in 1910, Micronesia with the League of Nations mandate in 1914, and then the efforts to build um, Manchukuo that begin in 1906 after the Russo-Japanese War, 1931, the Manchurian incident and the establishment of the puppet state of Manchukuo. So Japan does have this colonial empire and it sends settlers out to settle in this empire. And the best analog for this empire is probably something like Italy, right? So a small country that's a latecomer to imperialism that sends out settlers to um, colonies, right? And then on top of that, we have the war. And I would periodize the war from 1937 with Japan waging war on China from the Marco Polo Bridge incident. And then, of course, the Pacific War picks up with 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor and the rest of Southeast Asia. So there's a longer history of empire and then the war that Japan begins to wage on its neighbors, first China and then the United States. And the Pacific War, it's such an interesting um, conflict. It's, it, it appears in our popular culture in the United States and it's very dramatic and you've got the kamikaze and you know there's a lot going on in what we call the Pacific War from 1941 to 1945, right? Um, but it's two, it's two layers of the empire and the war. They come to a very dramatic end at the same moment when Japan surrenders, accepts the Potsdam Declaration on August 15th, 1945, and people gather around their radios and listen to Hirohito, read the rescript on surrender. Um, and um, um, then the official surrender ceremony on September 2nd on the Missouri with, with General Douglas MacArthur shows up, right? So it happens at the same moment. Um, but then moving into the post-war period, the empire and the war get collapsed. So we move into post-war Japan and we forget about what I would call post-imperial Japan, right? So all of that, it, there should be two pre-war categories of empire and war, and there should be two post-war categories of post-imperial and post-war, but the post-imperial gets kind of folded into the post-war conversations. And then the real, kicker is that instead of treating Japan as a kind of post-imperial place, because it's under American allied occupation from 1945 to 1952, it almost looks colonial, right? That, the, that a Western white power comes in, occupies it, and Japan is able to present itself as more of a former colony than a former empire. So the imperial part gets obscured for a long time. To answer your technical question, what is decolonization? Um, so decolonization technically is um, the collapse of empires and the creation of new nation states in the decades after World War II. So if we put Japan into an imperial framework, decolonization would be the abrupt end of empire in 1945, and then the change of relationship between metropolitan Japan Taiwan, Korea, Micronesia, Manchukuo, and how those countries then become independent nation states politically and economically. So that usually happens for about, um, we think of this as happening for about 20 years. But as we move forward in time, we're now in the moment of a, of a cultural decolonization um, where people, you know, if you think about decolonization worldwide, where people in former African colonies or former um, 
um, Middle Eastern colonies are trying to reject the values that colonization brings. And then um, that ultimately leads to a whole new way of trying to understand the world, which is post-colonial studies. And um, the best definition of post-colonial studies I've come up to is called is an attempt to challenge the epistemological predominance of Western modes of thought um, and forge a shared identity derived from the colonial experience. So when people in English departments say that they are doing post-colonial studies, they're really actually trying to bring a whole new framework of understanding to the world that rejects kind of our, our predominant modes of, of inquiry. Coming broadly from the discussion of Japanese decolonization, how does the North Korean repatriation project fit into that? Um, what is the repatriation project? And I guess even what does repatriating mean? So. In 1945, um, the war comes to an abrupt end and the empire collapses and the allies, especially the Americans, are faced with this issue of doing away with Japan as a, as a military power. So they take apart the military, they demobilize all the troops, they do away with the army, they do away with the navy, they write the pacifist clause into the constitution that um, the right of belligerency of the state will not be maintained. So all of this is a way of taking, um, of trying to reduce Japan's ability to wage war. Um, it turns out that the Americans also had plans for Japanese settler colonialism. And so they go out and there are 6.9 million Japanese people outside of the home islands of Japan, half are military, half are civilian. They go out the Americans have the shipping resources because they've just geared up to defeat the Japanese in World War II. And they send out these ships all over the empire, scoop up these Japanese people and bring them back home to um, Japan. And home is in scare quotes because some of them have been born and raised in the colonies. They have no intention of coming back, but the Americans identify all of the people who they think are Japanese, bring them back, dump them in the home islands and um, call it good. At the same time, um, with some help from some Japanese operatives, they identify the former colonial population within Japan, and these are Koreans and Taiwanese, and they decide that as they're sending these ships back and forth, that they will take um, as many Koreans and Taiwanese as they can and remove them from the home islands of Japan. And so there's an exchange where Six million Japanese come home and about a million Japanese are sent to, a million Koreans are sent to the uh, Korean Peninsula. So, and this is, you know, facilitated by Japanese people who think that it's going to be better, Korea, Japan is going to be better without the Koreans, and the Americans are happy to oblige in that situation. And one of the real problems here has to do with the family register system, the koseki, right? And so, the way it was decided as to who was Japanese at the moment of 1945, and it comes into effect in 1952 when the San Francisco Peace Treaty is signed, is if you had a koseki or a family register within Japan. And most Koreans and Taiwanese people did not have family registers in Japan. Their family registers are back in Korea or Taiwan. And so it's at that point 
where unless you've got a domestic, a metropolitan koseki, you are no longer Japanese. And that comes into effect in 1952. And so this is what creates the Zainichi population, the resident Korean population um, of their permanent residents, um, but they're, they're not citizens, they can't vote, they have real problems traveling because Japan won't give them a Japanese passport. So they have to figure out a way to get a passport. And these days, the South Korean government will usually give folks a passport, but it's odd because it's, you know, third and fourth generation Korean Japanese don't speak Korean, don't have any ties in Korea, traveling on a Korean passport. So this, it's a terrible situation, the Zainichi situation in Japan. It's, it's kind of shocking that this still exists. And there's a, there's a really interesting novel that's been published about this, um, Min Jin Lee's Pachinko. Um, and and that, um, the, the novel is interesting because it really does bring our attention to this issue of, of, of Zainichi um, in Japan. Um, but fast forwarding to your question, and you know, I have to say that I get all of this information from Tessa Morris Suzuki from her excellent book called um, Exodus um, to North Korea. Um, but it's such a, a fascinating study um, of how you know you've got these six hundred thousand ethnic Koreans in Japan, some of whom are um, affiliated with North Korea through this organization called um, Chongrun. And then um, you've got all of these other parties who come together with their own reasons for wanting to be rid of them. So the Ministry of Health and Welfare doesn't want to pay them welfare benefits. Um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is unable to deal with the DPRK with North Korea. So they use this proxy organization, the Japanese Red Cross. Um, and then, you know, North Korea wasn't especially interested in them to begin with, but then eventually the DPRK and the USSR can see that it would be a propaganda coup if you can get people moving from a capitalist democratic society to a communist society, because the flow usually goes the other way. If you can say, we've got people flowing into a socialist regime, people who really want to come back to a socialist regime, that's really helpful. And in fact, one of the leaders of the DPRK who was involved in this um, repatriation movement, he was somebody who had been a victim, his family had been a victim of the Stalin purges. And he in fact, he himself was born in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. There was a huge um, push to move Koreans from the, from the Russian Far East over to the Central Asian Republics. And he was a Koryo Saram, they call them. Um, so, so somebody who was, he spoke Russian, his interests were aligned with those of the Soviet state and he came back to, to North Korea. So there are all of these people um, in whose interest it is to move these, these Koreans to the North and they start to work together um, with the Japanese Red Cross sort of tricking the International Committee of the Red Cross into treating it as a humanitarian issue and moving these folks um, to the DPRK. Um, do you think the project would have happened otherwise if so many people had not been involved and it and it wasn't so coordinated? I mean, a lot of times it's framed as a, oh, you know, it was just kind of a a migration that happened. It was something that happened. It wasn't something that that was put into action. Um, so, do you think? I guess. Uh, 
the role of all these state and non-state actors in implementing the project was kind of the perfect storm to allow this to occur? You know, one of the best things about this book, Exodus to North Korea, is that that Tessamore Suzuki tells us, you know, if a story appears very smooth, um, you should immediately be suspicious of it. Like, oh, yes, these people just wanted to go back to North Korea, and lo and behold, the opportunity presented itself, right? And then she goes back and says, no, actually, it was orchestrated. It was carefully, and I mean, she pins it on this one person named Ino Rue, um, who's got these contacts um, back into the past and moving forward as a representative of the Red Cross. But, um, you know, there were certainly a lot of interests that, that intersected to have this movement happen. So I would say that it's orchestrated. Um, but even the, the organization Chongnun, let's see, Chongnun is, um, you know, they're supposed to be advocating for the North Korean population or the people who come to be identified as the North Korean population in Japan, even they get involved because they have interests, they have some material interests, they take over the resources of people who leave and it helps them meet their kind of ideological goals. Oh, things are terrible in Japan. If only we could go back to the homeland, things would be better. So it's, it's all sorts of people, including some Koreans, who facilitate this, this happening. And it's just the ordinary um, ethnic Koreans who end up in Japan who, who are manipulated into returning. You know, the United States has this story of decolonizing Japan and and promoting ideals of Western democracy and, you know, anti-fascist, anti-communist ideals. And yet they, they committed this massive human rights abuse of, full well knowingly and and i guess if you could speak on why that would be great right and you may be better informed about about this than i am the united states is is very active in trying to remove koreans from japan in 1945 during the occupation of, of japan from 1945 to 1952 they're eager to get rid of koreans and you know the United States is also a principal in the Cold War. So as an ally of South Korea um, during the war and even after the war, and they're definitely propping up the regime of Park Chung-hee in South Korea. So they're complicit in that, you know, many people would have preferred to return to South Korea, but because the Koreans in Japan have been labeled as communists, there's no way that they can go to South Korea and survive. They'll be killed or imprisoned, right? So I think that the United States is complicit in terms of its strong anti-communist stance and its support of the anti-communist regime in South Korea. As far as the specific movement of people, and um, more Suzuki periodiz periodizes this from 1959 to 1984, and she says, you know, it's 90,000 out of 600,000 Koreans that get sent. Um, as far as that specific movement, I'm not actually aware of active American participation. Um, it, it appears that it's the International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva working with the Japanese Red Cross and the local Korean organization um, in Japan, as well as the government of the DPRK. Why, why do you think it's so hard to achieve consensus on 
uh, controversial issues like the North Korean repatriation project, like the issue of comfort women, visits to Yasukuni Shrine. Why specifically does it seem that we have so many contentions over discrepancies in memory in the East Asian region, specifically stemming from, you know, the past century of colonization and and war? You know, I would love to answer that question. I wanted to loop back just briefly um, to the North Korea, if, if, if you've got time, do you mind? Okay. Um, because when I think about um, the North Korean repatriation project, so from 1959 to 1984 is how Moore Suzuki periodizes it. And then in my own mind, when I think about what happens next, um, the best book I've read on this is Barbara Demick's book called Nothing to Envy. And she is a award-winning uh, journalist for the Los Angeles Times, but she wrote this nonfiction um, book about the famines that took place in North Korea in the 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And in this book, she profiles five families, and they're all families that eventually defected to South Korea. That's how she can tell this story. So she these people in South Korea and then works backward and pieces together a portrait of life in North Korea in the 1990s. And one of her main families that she focuses upon is a, is a boy that she calls Jun Sung. Um, and he comes from a family that's come back from Japan. Um, so his parents were raised in Japan. They are part of the repatriation project and then um, they live there in North Korea. And it's really interesting to learn about that family because they're relatively wealthy for a North Korean family. They get money from their relatives in Japan and they live in a little house. They have some privacy. They even have a pet dog, which was quite unusual in North Korea, right? So we get this, this portrait of them. On the other hand, because they're from Japan, they're always politically suspect. So Jun Sung as a teenager, you know, he does get to go to college, but he's very carefully watched. And of course he's um, very self-disciplined because he needs to perform his loyalty because his loyalty is always suspect. And then eventually he defects um, to South Korea, which is where Barbara Demick finds him and tells this story. But so it, when trying to piece together what happens next, I find that book to be really quite informative. Um, and then trying to think about steps after that. And here, I'm guessing that you know more about this than I do, but I was trying to follow this story to the present day where people who were ethnic Koreans from Japan, who go to the North Korea, who defect, and then eventually make their way back to Japan is my understanding how that loop works. Um, there is another scholar named um, Sheena Chestnut Greitens. She's a political scientist working at UT Austin. And she works on North Korean defectors who end up in unlikely places like Canada or Europe and not South Korea. And I'll bet that she's got her eye on what happens to people who return to Japan. And she's dealing with questions of, you know, with the North Korean defectors, people like to talk about them in the context of human rights, but we need to preserve the human rights of these defectors. But the reality is anybody who defects from North Korea has the opportunity to take South Korean citizenship. And if you have the opportunity to take South Korean citizenship or any citizenship, then you don't qualify for asylum. And so it's built into the system that North Korean defectors, it's really, really hard for them to go anywhere other than South Korea because of the legal systems in place. 
Um, so, so that's as far as I as I go um, in terms of of what happens then. But your question is, why is it that it's so hard um, to come to an agreement in the public sphere? Um, why do these? Why do you know? And, and what's the solution? How can we reach any sort of resolution? Um, I, I don't know how to reach any sort of resolution. I mean, I do think understanding the problem better, understanding the idea that the Japanese state needs to take responsibility, but also recognizing that people in ordinary people in Japan have done a lot of memory work. So that would be one step. Um, just, I wanted to mention one more memory theorist that I find helpful. And his name is Michael Rothberg. And he wrote a book called Multidirectional Memory. And in this book, he identifies what he calls the competitive memory model. And the competitive memory model is this idea that the real estate for memory is limited. And it's kind of a zero sum game in terms of trying to promote your issue. So if you are a memory activist for Unit 731 or a memory activist for uh, the Nanjing atrocity, you know, you want your memory issue to take up a certain amount of space and drown out everybody else, right? And then what Rothberg proposes is something else, which he calls the multi-directional memory. And the idea that, you know, people focus a lot on Holocaust memory, right? And then isn't there any way that we could make use of, of Holocaust memory um, in ways to make us more compassionate about other tragedies, right? So instead of competing for memory space, try to see how memory can work together more productively and more compassionately. And my sense of what happens in Asia is that it's still very much in a competitive memory um, model. And, you know, if you give too much attention to Siberian de detainees, then that takes away attention from the Bataan Death March. Right, that it's all um, people vying for real estate um, in terms of, of claims on memory. And once we're able to move on from that way of thinking, then I think things will get better. Um, there's an interesting example of this. UNESCO has something called the Memory of the World Project, where people write into the memory of the world and they try to get their archives registered as um, a kind of heritage that belongs to the entire world. So it has things like the Declaration of Independence and the Diary of Anne Frank, all registered in the memory of the world. And it's really interesting to see how the Asian countries try to compete for memory of the world recognition. Um, and you know, the Japanese are like, oh, we want Siberian detainees recognized. And the Koreans are like, oh, we want the comfort women recognized. And there's a, there's a real sense of, of competition um, and, and limited real estate. Um, but, but I think once, if there's an effort to try to, to, try to uh, find ways to be more inclusive into memory communities, I think that maybe that's the solution. Thank you so much, Professor Watt, for such a lovely conversation. I feel like I learned a lot, and I hope anyone who listens to this podcast does okay. too. Okay, well, it was a pleasure speaking with you. What really stood out to me right off the top were the disciplinary differences in the way that the two of you as historians, or at least in your case, historically minded scholars, approach what I as a political scientist would call questions of transitional justice. 
And I think all of us could say that we're interested in memory work, whatever that means. Uh, but what that means through the lens of these different disciplinary conventions is really quite fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And Carly, in the interview, you and Professor Watt commented on how 1989, the, the, the end of the Cold War, was an important moment in discussions of the way Japan's actions during World War II were being remembered you know, some 45, 50 years later. I think the phrase history and memory wars was used. Can you speak a bit on what those history and memory wars were about and how they played out? Yes. So in reference to the year that Professor Watt mentioned um, in our interview, 1989 was the year that Emperor Hirohito of Japan died. Uh, and he had ruled Japan since 1926. So it was under his reign that really saw the height of Japanese imperial expansion, as well as its subsequent demise after the end of World War II. And pre and after his death, um, historians and scholars were more apt to criticize him for his actions in the Asia-Pacific Wars. And as a, as a precursor to this already um, in 1982, the Japanese government had approved public school textbooks that significantly downplayed their role in committing wartime atrocities. Um, and there are a couple of standout issues uh, that are still talked about extensively today, things like the Nanjing atrocity and the issue over Korean women who were forced into sexual slavery uh, for the Japanese military, also known, as, also known as comfort women. And so in 1982, uh, at the announcement of this publication of this textbook, South Korea and China erupted in outrage at um, Japan's ability to forget really what they had committed, what crimes they had committed during the war. Um, and in response to these claims, uh, many Japanese people now commonly believe it's not an issue over memory wars, but rather the South Korean and Chinese governments um, kind of disapproval of this, things like publication of textbooks that change the story is an excuse to push Japan around rather than trying to, um, you know, seek justice and a more accurate historical narrative of what really happened. It's a commonly held view in Japan that they have already paid significant war reparations. The government has already apologized and that there's nothing left to be done. Um, but really I think that can be attributed to the past two decades of, of this resurgence of Japanese nationalism and an effort to reclaim what they call the glory of Japanese history. So it's really fascinating because the end of the Cold War also coincides exactly with the emergence of the field of transitional justice, which is so concerned with these issues of apology and reparation. And it was really interesting to hear Professor Watt's account of why the consequences of the North Korean repatriation project didn't really track with what transitional justice scholars like Catherine Sicking have called the justice cascade that's occurred on a global scale through the normalization of transitional justice mechanisms. So I really appreciated the tension that she presented between uh, pressures from outside for apology and compensation versus what she called pressures from below for other forms of recognition. What I found most puzzling, and again, this is maybe kind of a disciplinary question as a political scientist, is where Japanese institutions did or didn't fit in. And so you've sort of spoken to that a little bit, but I wonder how much of this relates to practical forms of sovereignty. 
So many of the big international transitional justice efforts since the 1990s have been in the context of really weak or fractured states where there's little international confidence in or respect for the domestic political institutions of different countries as a means of addressing human rights violations. But that really can't be said about Japan in the 1990s, right? Or about the United States, which had its own role in this story as you, as you both elaborated. So in this way, Professor Watt seems to give us, I think, a way of understanding why the international as a kind of category of analysis seems to defer to the state and why perhaps pressures from below have then become such an important site of memory negotiation. That's a really great point, especially when we're thinking about the tug back and forth between the international level and the state, and then with, you know, under the state, these various kind of forces from below. But I really appreciated how Carly opened up this episode with a quote from a diary to kind of, kind of remind us about the fact that we're dealing with individual lives in this, in this story. So Carly, I know you've been doing research on the North Korean Repatriation Project, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts and how things have developed for the people involved in recent years. Can you tell us anything about what has happened to these people and how things stand today? That is an excellent question. And um, according to my research, a lot of repatriates have since escaped from North Korea to South Korea, China, or Japan. Um, and we really saw a peak in this when the statewide famine took place in the DPRK between 1994 and 1998. So the 1990s, as a result, saw hundreds of people um, fleeing North Korea to escape poverty, starvation, and a good, a significant number um, were repatriates, at least of what we know. Um, and in response to this, the Japanese government is only involved in helping previous victims of the repatriation project insofar as um, granting them entrance to the country. However, they are very specific not to label them as refugees in their official government language. Um, and this is for a reason because uh, Japan, the Japanese state has always had, um, has always treated immigration and emigration as a national security issue. Um, and they don't wanna create a policy that would leave them open to accepting too many people in the future um, that, they, that they don't want to let back into the state. So um, a lot of repatriates are living in, um, in South Korea, China, or Japan. And those who live in Japan, since the government has let them back into the country but hasn't really given them any specific aid in resettling or um, rebuilding a life in Japan, uh, there have been a lot of grassroots community organizations created and dedicated to this. So today's episode took us back in time, but it's a reminder that decolonization is far from a finished process in so many different contexts today, even when the really most obvious forms of domination have been dismantled. Talking with you, Carly, and listening to Dr. Watt talk about the struggles over memory really highlights that. Yeah, indeed. It's a reminder that we may think of the past as history, but as always, it's more complicated than that. Professor John. You've been listening to It's More Complicated Than That a podcast on world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. 
This episode was conceived by Carly Shiver, hosted by Stacey Philbert Yadav and Kevin Dunn. Audio production by me, Kelly Walker. This has been a production of the IR program at HWS and the Geneva Sound Factory. Thanks for listening.